premier audio resource for workers' compensation claims in North Carolina. Welcome back, everyone, to the latest episode of Claim Closure. I'm your host, Brian Grozier, partner at Midkiff Muncie and Ross, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we're going to take a pause on the arising out of podcast episodes to talk about some case law. So every time a case comes out, published or unpublished, from the North Carolina Court of Appeals or the North Carolina Supreme Court, we're going to dedicate an episode to talk about it so that you have an idea as to what the most recent rulings are coming from the appellate courts. And it really applies the principles that we're talking about in these episodes to real life cases and how the courts actually view those cases. And hopefully when you listen to these podcast episodes, you have a good idea of how the court is going to rule once you actually hear the facts of the case. And so this case today uh, recently came out about uh, uh, oh, about two weeks ago. At this point, uh, it's under the name of Gilliam versus Foothills Temporary Employment. And Synergy was the uh, carrier on the risk for this particular case. And you're dealing with two things. One, you're dealing with whether or not a death is causally related uh, to the work injury, or is, is causally related to work. And then second... Uh, an average weekly wage issue. And if you recall, we had a whole podcast episode on uh, Form 22, and we briefly talked about how to calculate an average weekly wage on the Form 22. And so this case hinges largely on that. And so let's talk about it. It involves a situation where a uh, college student uh, who was 24 years old at the time was working what really amounted to a summer job. He was a temporary employee and he's working a summer job. And at the time he was working at a bakery and it was called Bimbo Bakeries. And he worked in a uh, general utility position is what the court said, making 1150 an hour. And this is a large scale uh, bread making facility. And what they would do is they would work on this thing that was called a lid line that was approximately four feet wide by 60 feet long. And it runs along a conveyor belt. And the lid, the lid line workers were generally responsible for observing those lids, and uh, making sure that they're being produced efficiently and for ensuring that the type of lid being produced is consistent with the product currently being baked. And for stacking those lids to the side of the conveyor belt in racks as appropriate during changeover periods. So, you know, you're talking about assembly line work. And what the important thing was here is it was really hot, hot work. Um, you know, they were, there was testimony in the case that uh, it would routinely be hotter in the bakery than it would be outside. And on this particular day, which was July 29th of 2018, the testimony was it was over 100 degrees uh, in the facility. And so this 24-year-old, in some context uh, here that's important in this case, he, had, he was a college student. He was a college student in Mississippi, and there had been evidence and testimony at the hearing that he was not planning uh, to work at this job for the rest of his life or for the foreseeable future. It was actually a finite period of time until he went back to school in Mississippi in August. And he had done that for the past two years in terms of working a summer job. And each summer, he would go back to work or go back to school around the first week of August. Uh, so he'd stop working that summer job and then go back to school. And that was going to be the same plan on this particular summer in 2018. 
And he even had a uh, Facebook post uh, where he talked about getting ready to go back to school, and he made a comment uh, on that post, and this was just a few, about a week or so before his death, he had made a comment on Facebook saying how much he was looking forward to going back to school so he could uh, get out of working in the uh, bakery environment, alluding to how hot it was and everything in there. Uh, and what happens is these ovens, you know, that are cooking these items, I mean, they're they're operating at about four, 450 degrees. Uh, and even though the workers there aren't uh, in the oven itself or right next to it, they are on the line. And when the product comes out from it, it is emanating heat and it is a facility that just has fans going. It doesn't necessarily have air conditioning going. The break rooms do, which is important in this particular case as well. But it can be hot in there. And, uh, you know, there's places to have airflow with the fans. But when you're operating around ovens like that it's it's going to get toasty especially in july late july in north carolina that's probably one of the hottest times of the year and so in this particular case his shift began around four or five and uh, he was working next to a gentleman and uh, he gave the gentleman his name was larry brooks a a break 20 minute break and uh, one of the other co-workers an oven operator came over to the claimant and, and said hey you know are you doing okay you good you need any water or anything and the guy's like no no i'm fine i'm fine and it's notable that he had uh, i think a physician's appointment uh, earlier in july uh, just a general checkup follow-up and everything was normal right like uh, all vital signs were good no heart issues no indication of any type of disease or condition of any kind just a standard you know, well checkup for a 24-year-old male college student. Well, uh, Brooks came back from his break. He'd been on break, and the claimant was uh, working uh, uh, at the time without him. He comes back, and he finds the claimant lying face down on the, on the lid line platform. And EMS comes, and they try to uh, revive him. They do a, uh, an extended period of time of CPR, but they can never get uh, anything back uh, for him. And so he ends up dying. Uh, I don't know if it was at the scene itself or on the way actually to the hospital, uh, but never never recovered and, and ends up dying. And they, they did an autopsy on him, and, they, and the cause of death was labeled as probable dysarrhythmia due to cardiomegaly. And I don't know, I'm not pronouncing that right, but uh, cardi- cardiomegaly, I think, is how you, how you pronounce it. But this is why I depose doctors and let them... Uh, 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 clarify as to how those things are pronounced anyways. <laughs> it's the reason I'm an attorney, not a uh, not a physician. But the major findings from the autopsy were that he had an enlarged heart with an increased concentric left ventricle thickness and an enlarged heart impairing the proper coordinated electrical conduction which predisposes to have a fatal arrhythmia. And so you had a multitude of experts. You had an OSHA expert, you had a forensic uh, pathologist testify. He had a cardiologist testify in this particular case, and uh, basically it was a battle of the experts. But here is the reason why it was. Before I get into the average weekly wage, because this is also important too. When it, nobody obviously saw him die, right? They came upon him and he was dead. And so it's important to know. And we'll talk about this in a future episode. But there is a presumption in North Carolina that if you die at work that work caused the death. It's called the Pickerel presumption. Uh, 
And so the burden is on you as the employer and the carrier to rebut that presumption. And I think the idea in this particular case was looking at the autopsy and saying, seeing that he had this condition, this underlying condition, uh, that that was the cause of it, right? And that was able to rebut that presumption that work caused his death. Now, the plaintiff and the plaintiff's attorneys, at least in this case, were arguing, oh, no, no, no. It was the heat in the facility, the extreme 100 degree, 115 degree heat in the facility that was a significant contributing factor in the death. Now, work didn't cause this condition to be uh, in the, in the uh, claimant, but it aggravated the condition leading to the heart condition, you know, the heart attack, whatever it was specifically that he sustained that caused, uh, that caused his death. And so if work is a significant contributing factor to the death, even though this idiopathic condition, and we'll talk about an idiopathic condition at a, at a future episode, but that's what this is, right? What I just read on the autopsy is what is deemed as an idiopathic condition. If work is a significant contributing factor to the death, combining with that idiopathic condition, then you're going to have a compensable claim, which is what was being argued here. And there was a battle of the experts uh, at the time. Uh, there was a cardiologist, uh, who I believe was out of the Raleigh area, if I remember correctly, but his name was uh, uh, Dr. Guzzo, G-U-Z-Z-O. He was a board-certified cardiologist practicing out of Raleigh. And uh, he he testified that the claimant had a pre-existing cardiomyopathy, uh, most likely dilated, which basically means he has an enlarged heart. And when he was asked what could cause this condition in such a young person, recall this guy's only 24, he said it was most commonly, it's only, it's something that they're actually born with. So you're talking about a genetic, you know, congenital condition, right? And uh, when asked if the exposure to heat increased the risk for the sudden cardiac death secondary to that condition, Dr. Gazzo explained that there was no good randomized study on the topic, probably for ethical reasons. And when he reviewed the autopsy report, he said the first finding is probably the most important. And it showed that he had an enlarged heart. Uh, In fact, he described it as a very enlarged heart. And so the most important factor from a heart standpoint on his autopsy is that there was a buildup of fibrous tissue between the muscle cells. And what this indicates is not an acute abnormality, but a chronic one. And so you've got the cardiologist explaining that this guy had this congenital condition this idiopathic condition that was the primary cause of death, according to the autopsy, and that there wasn't anything from a study standpoint that really proved that heat or that type of environment for which the claimant was in would in any way, shape, or form be a contributing factor. Basically saying, this guy was going to die at some point, just didn't know when. You know, it was going to happen at some point. Could heat have played a role in it? It's possible. But he said it would only be exclamation at the, or speculation at that point. Then you had Dr. Thomas Owens, and he's a forensic pathologist. And if you just finished watching the Murdoch case down in South Carolina, you saw the forensic pathologist in that particular case that uh, reviewed both of the bodies and uh, in terms of how they died and how the shotgun blasts went into them and how the shots were fired and everything else as it relates to looking at the body. They look at the entirety of the um, 
condition. They look at the, the body itself. They look at the autopsy and they look at the circumstances surrounding it to determine the actual cause of death. And so when the forensic pathologist looked at it, he testified to a reasonable degree, Dr. Owens testified to a reasonable degree of medical certainty that assuming that the claimant experienced temperatures in the bakery between 100 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit before his collapse, the heat significantly contributed to his fatal dysrhythmia, and he was more susceptible to suffering the dysrhythmia because of those conditions. Dr. Owens testified that he would not defer to the cardiologist. Uh, regarding any of his opinions, because as a cardiologist, that's an expert in managing a person who has heart diseases. But in terms of interpreting an autopsy and looking at the clinical findings and looking at the circumstances of the death, cardiologists are not forensic pathologists. They don't know what they, what to do in that regard. And they don't put all the pieces together as to determine how someone dies like a forensic pathologist does. And so what, what, I was, what I'm explaining there is it is a battle of the experts. And the full commission ended up giving more weight to Dr. Owens as the forensic pathologist than they did the cardiologist and determined that work, and specifically the heat, uh, the abnormal heat in that bakery being between 100 and 115 degrees, was a significant contributing factor to the cause of death, which was truly an, an idiopathic condition, but the heat was a significant contributing factor, and therefore it was a compensable case. Now... It's interesting here because the defendants ended up appealing, uh, but the Court of Appeals deemed that uh, the appeal was not preserved, at least the issue in terms of whether or not Dr. Owens, that forensic pathologist, should have been accepted as an expert under Rule 702. Uh, that wasn't preserved. And so the defendants ended up losing that appeal at the Court of Appeals. So the, really all that was left, but I wanted to bring it up in terms of the issues so that you saw kind of how the courts worked through that, both at the full commission and at the Court of Appeals in terms of what a PICRO presumption is, what happens when you die at work, and what the courts are looking at in terms of the idiopathic condition versus something at work significantly contributing to the cause of death, even if an idiopathic condition does exist. And again, we'll talk about idiopathic conditions in another episode, but this was a good opportunity to kind of give you a, a precursor for that and see how it actually plays out in a case. So the other issue, and this is something that the plaintiff's attorneys actually cross-appealed on, was average weekly wage. And so what you had here is you have a gentleman that started working for this temp agency in, I think it was May. And so he's working in May in 2018, and he dies in July of 2018. So he's only been there for basically less than three months. And if you recall from when I talked about the Form 22, we talked about there were five different ways that you can determine an average weekly wage and look at the Form 22 and determine you know, an average weekly wage from what you see on that Form 22. And they're chronological, right? You have to do the step one. And if step one is not fair and just to either party, you move on to step two. And then you go to step three and then step four and step five. And that's all under 97.25. And so what had happened at the full commission is they saw that this gentleman was only working for a very short period of time. And he wasn't supposed to work for longer than the summer anyways. 
And so they couldn't do step one because if you recall, step one is if you worked a full 52 weeks, you just take whatever the gross earnings or earnings were for those 52 weeks and you divide by 52. It's the easiest way to determine an average weekly wage. The second step is to take the, if they did work a full 52 weeks, but they didn't work, they were more than seven consecutive days missed during that 52-week period. So they were employed for the full 52 weeks, but you know they went on vacation, they were sick, they were out of work for some period of time. But anyways, there is a block of uh, more than seven consecutive days of time that they weren't working. Right, so you count those boxes on the on the uh, uh, form twenty two, and if you have seven of them, you've got a gap, right? You've got a gap that you've got to account for. And what you do, let's say that they just missed one week out of the fifty two, well, then you would take the gross earnings and then divide by fifty one because that's you take out that period of time uh, that they missed, you know, that that fits that requisite period of time, those seven consecutive days. But if that didn't happen, the claimant didn't work or wasn't employed with the company for 52 weeks prior to the date of injury, then you move to step three. And step three is you're looking at that period of time that they did work. And so let's say they only worked 30 weeks and they earned that amount in gross earnings. Well, you would take the gross earnings and divide by 30 and figure out the average weekly wage from there. Pretty straightforward, similar to what step one is. Uh, but on a shortened period of time. The problem with that, if you applied that to this particular case, is he was never going to work a full 52 weeks. And so if you have a situation like this where he was only working, uh, he'd only worked for two months, and he earned uh, an amount of wages, and in this particular case, I think he earned something a little bit north of $5,000 in terms of that. Well, what step three would require you to do is to take those eight weeks and take the gross earnings of around $5,200 or whatever it is that he actually earned and uh, divide by those eight weeks, right? And that's what you would end up paying. But if you did that, let's just play that out from a math perspective here to give you some an illustration of it. Let's see if I can actually find the uh, the figure that he earned. Uh, I want to say it was yeah five thousand twenty one dollars and thirteen cents. All right, so those were the gross earnings, and he had worked from May seventeenth through July twenty ninth, and I don't remember how many days that equates to, but let's just hypothetically say that that comes out to um, ten weeks. Okay, so you divide that by ten. And obviously, you get an average weekly wage of 502.11. So under step three, you would then, you know, that would be the average weekly wage, 502.11. So let's divide by three times by two, and you get a compensation rate of 334.74. The problem is, is that in a death case, you're, you know, you're paying out 500 weeks. But let's just explain that in a year to illustrate this. 334.74 as the compensation rate, you times that by 52, that means he was going to make $17,406 in um, compensation or in TTD checks for that entire uh, year, which isn't accurate because let's take a look again at what he had made in those 10 weeks. It was only $5,021.13 in 10 weeks. But remember, 
he was going back to school in August, right? So he wasn't going to be there much longer, probably another week or two that he was even going to be there at all. And then he was going to go off to college and wasn't even going to work for them anymore. And he already knew that. That was definitive. So you take that average weekly wage again, 502.11, and you times that by 52, and you're making $26,109.87 Uh, in terms of an estimated gross earnings for this company in the course of a year. Well, that's entirely not accurate. He was going to probably make somewhere around $6,000 for the entire summer because he had already made $5,000 and he maybe was going to work another week or two uh, to finish up the summer. He was going to make something between $5,000 and $6,000 the entire year that he worked for this company because he was only going to work for them for about three months. He wasn't going to work for them for a full year. And so if you use method three, he'd be getting a financial windfall of nearly $20,000 in terms of the gross earnings. And that's just not an accurate representation. It's not fair to the defendants to pay an inflated wage. Now, obviously the plaintiff wanted step method three, but it's not fair to the defendants in this because they'd be paying weekly checks that were much, much greater than they ever would have paid had he not died and just simply been injured on the job and survived and they were paying TTD, he would have he would have never made those that type of money, right? So the court determined the full commission took they they moved to step five because step four is you look for a similarly situated employee. And I guess I don't know the details of this, but they didn't have one in this particular matter to look at. And so they end up going to step five, which is kind of a free for all. And step five just allows you to kind of come up with a method that is fair and just to both parties. And so what the full commission had done is they had said, well, look, he worked for basically 10 weeks and he earned that $5,021.13. So we're just going to take the 5,021.13 divide by 10. I'm not saying they did it by 10. They used some sort of, you know, fractional week, I think, but I'm just using that for illustrative purposes. So they took the $5,021.13 divided that by 10, and that's your average weekly wage. Boom. Well, the plaintiff here was arguing, I think, that method three was the appropriate one. But what the Court of Appeals ultimately said was, well, you know, we got enough facts here to see that he, you, you can't really, yes, step method five is the correct one to use, but the facts indicate that he knew he was going to be working for at least another week or two before he went back to school. And so to cap his earnings to the time that he died isn't accurate either. And it's not fair to the claimant or to his estate because he would have actually earned a little bit more had he continued to finish out his term. So therefore they said, you need to actually calculate it to the time that he would have stopped working and then divide that by 52. And that will be the accurate average weekly wage and comp rate. What do I mean by that? Let's say he worked another two weeks or so. And let's just hypothetically say he he would have made $6,000 for that full summer before he went back to school as opposed to $5,000. Well, you can see the difference, right? So instead of taking the $5,000 and divided by uh, 52, uh, or you take the $5,000 that he made and you divide it by uh, 52, and that gives you a comp rate of $96.15. And I think that's pretty accurate because they the one that they came up with at the full commission was $96.56. So... So instead of that, let's say it was $6,000 and 
and you divide that by 52, well, now you've got an average weekly wage of $115.38. So you've got an average weekly wage that's $20 more. Is that that big of a deal? Probably not in your standard workers' comp case, but in a death case, it's 500 weeks of benefits. So you're talking about an extra $10,000 in death benefits just by that little tweak in the average weekly wage and compensation rate. And so what the court actually did here is they said, look, the method was correct that the full commission used, but the way that they did it wasn't fair to the claimant or to his estate at least, because it really didn't account for his total earnings that he would have accrued had he continued to work through the entirety of his term before he went back to school. It's a bit of a unique set of facts because in most cases it's open-ended, right? Even in temp employment situations, it can be open-ended as uh, there was a case, uh, nay, and I think I talked about that in the average weekly wage uh, episode. Uh, when they were determining the average weekly wage, just because it was a temp agency, a lot of the times those are temp to perm, right? And they might end up be being permanent employees and they have to look at the facts and the circumstances to see is there a date definitive that they are going to stop their employment or is it more open-ended in the sense that it could stop at this date, but it could actually go beyond that and they might get a perm uh, position. In this particular case, though, they had a date definitive, right? They knew exactly when this guy was going to stop because the school year was starting and he was going to go back to school. That were Those were the plans that he intimated to his family. Those were the plans that he posted about online. Uh, so, And those were the plans that he had had the previous two years as well. So the court knew that there was going to be a definitive stop date for him. It's just that in this particular case, the full commission had stopped the earning potential too soon. They needed to extend it out. If they're going to use method five, and again, it's a bit of a free-for-all, they look at all the facts and they want to make sure that this is a fair and accurate representation of what the claimant would have been making, but for the injury, that's the underlying rule, and they want to make sure that whatever they apply is fair and just to both parties, that's what they came up with. I really think they got this one right in terms of how to figure that out, because it is accurate that they knew what he was going to be making in terms of had he not died, this is what he would have finished at. It was a date definitive stop period for him. And if you shortchanged him just by stopping it at the date of death, it was not a really an accurate reflection of what he would have made, but for the work injuries. So it's a unique set of facts. Uh, I think they got it right in that regard. Uh, but it's interesting. It kind of does play out for you on the methods that they look at, method one, method two, method three, method four, and all the way to method five, which is what was used here, and how they get there in their analysis of it. So that is the gist of it. You're talking about a death case. You're talking about the presumption uh, in a death case, and you're also talking about how to figure out an average weekly wage in a temp uh, employment situation. So a lot going on in this particular case. Again, it's Gilliam versus Foothills Temporary Employment. Uh, it came out on February 21st of 2023. Uh, Judge Collins wrote the opinion, and I believe that St Stroud and Zachary uh, concurred in it. So uh, it was a 3-0 decision, and it got remanded back to the Industrial Commission uh, to make the findings of facts along the lines of what the court suggested. Uh, so again, this is something we'll do every time a case comes out. We'll do a case law update to kind of walk through how the uh, Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court look at these workers' comp cases. 
published opinions uh, do carry precedent. And so they are something that we cite in our cases or in our briefs when we uh, have cases in front of the uh, Industrial Commission. Unpublished cases don't have that precedential value, but they do illustrate how the courts look at the fact patterns and look at these cases coming out of the Industrial Commission and how they uh, end up ruling on them. So, you know, we talk about in all of these episodes, ideas and uh, rules and cases uh, involving different topics of workers' comp. And that's what these case law updates do as well. They take what we're teaching here and they apply it to a specific case and render a ruling based off of it. So it's interesting to follow along. We will continue to do this, or I will continue to do this with uh, each time a case comes out. Court of Appeals does it every uh, every first and third uh, Tuesday, I believe, of, of, uh, of the month. And so sometimes there's no cases coming out from a workers' comp, and sometimes there's two or three. So we'll try and cover as much as we can whenever it happens. Uh, but we'll get back into arising out of and talking about various topics still concerning that aspect of whether or not a, com- a claim is compensable here in North Carolina. But until that time, this has been Claim Closure.